if you really loved this church, then you'd realize that the carpet must be blue. It was the summer of 2005, and members of a church weren't speaking to one another. I heard their pastor describe what it was like. The church beautification team had decided to move forward with plans to carpet the sanctuary. Some donors didn't want carpeting in the sanctuary, saying they didn't think it was appropriate. Others didn't mind the carpeting, but they thought red was preferable to blue. The blue carpet people weren't talking to the red carpet people, and the no carpet people were ready to pack up and leave. The pastor's wife would turn her head whenever one of the deacon's wives passed by, and likewise, without making eye contact. Accusations had been made against the deacons, that the decision to recarpet the sanctuary had been railroaded, that the beautification team had been packed. One woman stormed out of the meeting in a rage. Things were said that ought not to have been said. Feelings were hurt, and it got nasty because the Christians were tearing each other apart. One week later, on August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina's storm surge caused 53 breaches to various flood protection structures in and around the greater New Orleans area, submerging 80% of the city. The church building was completely destroyed. The lion had roared. The Christians stopped fighting about the carpeting. The Hebrew prophet Amos spoke to the Israelites who had fallen very far from their God. The victims of their privileged lifestyle were many. The lion roars, he says. And that roar is a warning of impending judgment unless we repent, turn to the Lord, and walk in justice. J. Alec Matir summarizes the affluence and injustice of Israel during the days of Amos. He writes, affluence, exploitation, and the profit motive were the most notable features of the society which Amos observed and in which he worked. The rich were affluent enough to have several houses each, chapter 3, to go in for rather ostentatiously expensive furniture, chapter 6, and to not deny themselves any bodily satisfaction, chapters 3, 4, and 6. On the other hand, the poor were really poor and were shamelessly exploited. They suffered from property rackets, chapter 2, legal rackets, chapter 5, and business rackets, chapter 8. The defenseless individual with no influence came off for the worst every single time. When the poor could not contribute to the rich, they were simply ignored and left for broken. Money laundering and personal covetousness ruled all. The men lived for their offices, chapter 8. The women lived for excitement, chapter 4. And the rulers lived for frivolity. And against such a backdrop, with the sins of the nation surrounding Israel and Judah being so extreme, and yet looking at Israel and Judah themselves and seeing that they were almost as bad, if not worse, God himself, God the lion, roared at his people, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the first chapter of Amos going through the first five verses of chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord God Most High. The words 
of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire upon the house of Hazael that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Eden and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them, enslaved them to Edom. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Akron till the last of the Philistines is dead, says the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire upon Taman and that will consume the fortresses of Bozrah. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle. Amid violent winds on a stormy day, her king will go into exile. He and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kiriot. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries in the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Judah, even for four. I will not turn back my wrath because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods. 
the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. What is the Lord saying through Amos? He is saying both to Judah and to the nations that surround. He's saying, I see what you have done. Look at the injustice he describes. While God is the ultimate aggrieved party of every human act of cruelty, God puts the spotlight less on what we do to him, but instead on what we humans do to one another. Acts of cruelty and barbarity in the course of military campaigns. We read of slave trading and trafficking in populations here. We read of putting the commercial profit motive over the human welfare. We read here of breaking of commitments, breaking pledges, lacking integrity. We read here about hatred and anger and judgmentalism, a poison, bitterness, heart inflamed with bile. We read here of atrocities against the helpless, against the weak against those who could not defend themselves, the expectant mother and the unborn child that she carried in her womb, all in the name of human ambition and self-aggrandizement to expand, to grow larger, stronger, more successful, more powerful, more respected. We even read of desecrating the dead here. None of it had escaped the eye of the Lord God. He saw all of it. The endless self-pleasing of people putting themselves and their interests above those of their neighbors. People who used human beings and then discarded them, kicking them to the curb when they were no longer useful. We humans owe it to other humans to protect and defend each other. You know, in, in Western culture, particularly in the United States, we've developed kind of a compact notion of, of mutual moral obligation that if I enter into a contract with somebody, I'm obligated to them. And, and that's not the biblical view of obligation. Remember, what was the question when, when Cain killed Abel? And, and God asked, hey, where's your brother Abel? What did Cain ask? Am I my brother's keeper? And the biblical answer is yes. Yes, you are. You are responsible for human beings in which you have no personal investment or relationship and to whom you have made no commitments because they are made in God's image. It's the biblical doctrine of human solidarity. You know, the way it's often, the way we think often in, in our own culture, in a radically individualistic way, one of the, the the illustrations that's often used is of the famous violinist, um, not, not Cindy, um, but, uh, you know, it's a very, very famous violinist, one of the most famous in the world, develops some intense, acute disease that will absolutely kill him, except at the very last second, he plugs himself in to someone else, into you, through some kind of tube, and is able to draw nutrients and life from you. And because of that, he's alive. And yet you have this famous violinist plugged into you. And, 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 and the question is, is it right for you to unplug the famous violinist knowing that if you do so, he will die? And, and within our culture, we think, well, of course it's fair. You never agreed to let him plug into you. You didn't have a contract for this. Of course, it's his death, but you're not causing his death. You're just unplugging, and you don't have any mutual obligations. But the Bible says you have an obligation to that famous violinist to keep him alive. And to the church, you as the church have an obligation to help that poor soul who's plugged into a violinist figure out how to share that load so that it's not all one person. That's called love. Love always protects. 
And when we fail to protect, we sin. This is why the Bible doesn't call helping the poor and needy charity. Charity implies that it's optional. The Bible calls it justice because we are morally obligated to help those in need to the degree to which God enables us to do so. Um, it's an inborn responsibility for one another as image bearers of God. And that's true even if the whole system is corrupt, we're still called to justice and righteousness. And in Amos's day, the system was pretty corrupt. I mean, it was horribly imbalanced. The rich and powerful uh, could buy whatever law or whatever judgments they wanted. They could get away with anything, and they did, and the poor were treated horribly. Uh, and we would have expected that from those first nations condemned in his prophecy, the pagan nations that surrounded Judah and Israel. But we wouldn't have expected it from Judah and Israel because they were the Lord's family. They were the church before Christ came to redeem. And then the family of God in the church, we should expect to see justice that we don't expect to see outside the church. We should expect to see people doing right by one another, which is what righteousness is within the church because the Lord is there and we're a holy people. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. warned about seeking peace in the absence of justice. He said this, True peace, true shalom in the Old Testament is not the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. Because you can have peace where oppression is happening constantly. And that's not what the Lord seeks for us. He seeks justice. And God raises this prophetic voice of warning to his people. The lion roars in his warning of impending judgment. He's giving them room to reconsider, to turn to him, to be forgiven, and to be changed. On December 21st of 1511, the fourth Sunday of Advent, the Dominican missionary Antonio de Montesinos preached to the conquistadors and their families in, uh, in, in Santo Domingo. The message was an impassioned exposition criticizing the practices of the Spanish colonial encomienda system which enslaved the native Taino people and used them as slaves to work the plantations of the conquistadors. He decried in his sermon the abuse of the Taino people and Hispaniola. This was 19 years after Christopher Columbus had landed on the island and Spain had begun colonizing it. Listing the injustices that the indigenous people were suffering at the hands of the Spanish colonists, Montesinos proclaimed that the Spanish on the island, quote, are all in mortal sin and live and die in it because of the cruelty and tyranny that you practice among these innocent peoples. According to Bartolome de Casas, who was a witness, Montesinos asked uh, those in attendance, quote, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In order to make your sins known to you, I have mounted this pulpit. I, who am the voice of Christ, crying in the wilderness of this island, and therefore it behooves you to listen to me, not with indifference, but with all your heart and senses, for this voice will be the strangest, the harshest, and the hardest, the most terrifying that you have ever heard or expected to hear. The priest continued, This voice declares that you are all in mortal sin. You live and die in it because of the cruelty and the tyranny that you practice on these innocent people. 
Tell me, by what right or justice do you hold these Indians in such cruel and horrible slavery? By what right do you wage such detestable wars on these people who live mildly and peacefully in their own lands? where you have consumed infinite numbers of them with unheard-of murders and desolations? Why do you so greatly oppress and fatigue them, not giving them enough to eat and not caring for them when they fall ill from excessive labors, so that they die, or rather are slain by you, so that you may extract and acquire gold every day? And what care do you take that they receive religious instruction and come to know their Creator and God? or that they be baptized, hear, uh, hear Mass, or observe holidays and Sundays. Are they not men? Do they not have rational souls? Are you not bound to love them as you love yourselves? How can you lie in such profound and lethargic slumber? Be sure that your present state, be sure that in your present state, you can no more be saved than the Moors or Turks who do not have and do not want the faith of Jesus Christ. When he finished his sermon, Montesinos left the pulpit, confronted by angry gazes throughout the church. One member of the congregation, Pedro de Renteria, was convicted by what was preached, and he approached the priest and asked to confess his sins. But only that one man. The sermon outraged the conquistadors, including Admiral Diego Columbus, the son of Christopher Columbus, and other representatives of the king. According to Las Casas, he said, they agreed that they would at least go to reprimand and frighten the preacher and the others. If indeed they did not punish him as a scandalous person who was spreading a new teaching, never heard before, and was condemning everyone and speaking against the king and his dominion in the Indies. That afternoon, the conquistadors went to the house of the Dominicans to present their complaints to their superior, Pedro de Cordoba, Cordoba uh, who tried to calm them. He listened patiently to their charges. Uh, the superior explained that all the Dominicans had approved the sermon's text and all stood by everything that was said. Nevertheless, the colonists insisted that the next Sunday they would give the friars the opportunity to correct Montesinos' message. The church was packed the following Sunday for Christmas Mass. Montesinos again went to the pulpit, and without tempering his passion, he preached the exact same message, calling the conquistadors to repentance in Christ. You see, the lion roars in the face of cruelty, hate, evil, unrighteousness, injustice. God saw what was being done. An injustice ignored is an injustice condoned. He raised up his people to see it too and to speak. And that initial result of the protests of the friars at Santo Domingo was an order from King Ferdinand II that Montesinos and other Dominicans who supported him should be immediately shipped back to Spain. Ferdinand referred to the preaching of Montesinos as a novel and groundless attitude and a dangerous opinion that would do much to harm to all the affairs of that land. And so the voice of Christ was shipped back to Spain to give his account to the king. And he did that. The Montesinos was equally direct with the king and thought, and, and though the injustice continued within years, the king would dismantle the encomienda system 
someone had listened when the lion had roared. Over 200 years later, George Whitfield, the uh, Anglican Methodist uh, Reformed uh, uh, um, evangelist, uh, visited America. And in February of 1740, George Whitfield's friend Benjamin Franklin published three letters from the Reverend George Whitfield in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The first two letters dealt with Whitfield's concerns about doctrinal corruption within the Anglican Church. The third, however, was addressed, quote, to the inhabitants of Maryland, Virginia, North, and South Carolina, and registered his concern for the enslaved and their treatment. He wrote, as I lately passed through your provinces, I, I was sensibly touched with a fellow feeling of the miseries of the poor Africans. Whitfield continued, God has a quarrel with you for your abuse of and cruelty to these poor Africans. Should they ever rise up in arms against their owners, he wrote, though much blood would be shed, I pray it does not happen, Yet, should such a thing be permitted by divine providence, all good men must acknowledge that the judgment would be just. The lion roared. We didn't listen. So much blood would be shed in the centuries that followed. Still is. God sees injustice. He says, I see what has been done. I hear the cries. They come up and stand before me. But also... We need to understand who it is that we're dealing with. The Lord roars. Keep that picture. That's how God wants to be understood. He's saying, don't picture me as a senile old man on a cloud with flowy robes and a big beard, you know, throwing candy to children. That's not how I want you. I want you to see me as a lion. Proverbs 30.30 speaks of the lion, which is mightiest among the beasts that does not turn back before any. Hosea chapter 5, God says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and not one shall be rescued. Hosea 13, I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Revelation 5, we saw Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah who is also the sacrificial lamb. You know, it's a fierce animal, and this lion roars. A, a roar can travel up to five miles from a real lion. It's a warning. It's a way of saying, you have come too far. You have come into dangerous territory. You are violating my priorities here, and you will be punished. Back off and do so no more. Look at the warnings of impending doom over nation after nation in this first chapter of Amos. Seven nations all oppressing the weak and the poor. The last two were the church. The Assyrians were on the rise. And it would be within a century that all of these things would come true. All of these nations would be destroyed. They would be carried off into captivity. Others would be brought in to take the towns that were now deserted. And even the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes of Israel, would be lost forever because the lion roared and they did not listen. Notice specifically it's the Lord that roars. He's described as a lion. He's also described here as a consuming fire. He says, I will send fire upon Judah. 
fire seven times as judgment of God in chapter in verse 4, 7, 10, 12, 14, and in chapter 2, verses 2 and 5. Fire that is consumed like Nadab and Abihu. The young priests were consumed by fire when they authorized unauthorized sacrifices in the temple. You know, the Lord is a holy one, immense, a consuming fire, a lion who roars and brings a fire of judgment upon human cruelty and injustice. And from the pastures to the mountaintops, he roars. It's a total vision. Nowhere will be safe in opposition to the Lord. See, Greg, how can such a God be good? And yet, as I've mentioned recently, it's only the privileged who need this explained to them. If you're the victim, if you're the one abused, if you're the one whose house is burgled, whose loved one is murdered, then, then justice can look like mercy. Justice gives you an answer. Justice means that things are, are held to count and evil doesn't get the last word. There's a different vantage point that the victim, the underprivileged, the weak, the oppressed have Miroslav Volf, the Croatian theologian, bore witness to the human cruelty and genocide that he saw and lived out in the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. He saw firsthand how powerless and worthless was the notion of a universally nonviolent, nonjudgmental God that was so popular among theologians in Western Europe. In Wolf's book, Exclusion and Embrace, he argues that peaceful nonviolence only makes sense if there is a God who judges injustice. He writes this, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with people in the West. To the person inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. But imagine speaking to people as I have and do, whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been violated, whose sons and brothers and fathers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate, why not, I say. The only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, securely nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburban home, he writes, for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. It is a scorched land, soaked in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent. The ideal will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of the violence, then God would not be worthy of our worship. Goodness is what drives a passion for justice when we put ourselves in the place of the victim and the oppressed. In Amos' day, this divine judgment would come through the Assyrians. For three sins, even for four, I will not hold back my wrath. And when the Assyrian armies came, there was nothing they could do, and the destruction was nearly total. It should give us pause, because the Lord is holy. Understand what we're dealing with here. So where is their hope? There is hope, friends, 
in the roar of that lion. Because with every warning of judgment, there is the implicit call of our God and Savior Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, saying, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. I will refresh you. Take my yoke upon you and come to me. You know, the Hosea in chapter 11, the prophet wrote that, that he will roar like a lion and when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. It's his roar that calls us home to him where, where no, he's not a safe lion, but he is good. And he came to us as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the sacrificial lamb, the warrior lamb who was slain for us. For this to have any power in our lives, to reconcile us to God, power to change you, power to transform how you relate to the weak, to the poor, to the migrant, to the, to the, to the widow, to the unwanted child. You must first put yourself in the place of the oppressed spiritually. Because if you know what it's like to be so poor spiritually that you cannot pay off your debts to God, and then someone like Jesus comes and pays your debt off for you, you cannot look down on a poor person who can't pay off their debts. Because we have been forgiven the greater amount. We are to identify ourselves with the poor. Identify ourselves with the oppressed. Identify ourselves as the ones needing rescue. And when you see that, you see the beauty of God the lion in the face of Jesus. The lion who became a lamb and who became flesh for us. The lion, the lamb, and the flesh. In his... Christian allegory, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis describes how Aslan, the lion, makes a, a deal with the witch because Edmund, the most obnoxious human being in history at that point, was guilty and would die at the stone table. But the lion summons the witch and speaks with her and offers her an alternative arrangement. You know the story. As soon as the witch leaves, Aslan tersely announces to Peter, Susan, and Lucy that they must camp somewhere else. He doesn't explain uh, why they have to move or what happened between him and the witch. And as the day progresses, Aslan becomes more despondent. Aslan even hints to Peter that he may not be present at the imminent battle between the forces of the witch and their own forces. The camp is filled with gloom, with trepidation. And that night, Susan and Lucy worry about Aslan so they can't sleep and they realize that he's left the pavilion and they quickly leave to go find him and Susan and Lucy spot him and they run to him and they beg to follow him and Aslan agrees as long as Susan and Lucy leave when he tells them to. And as the three travel together, Aslan becomes increasingly depressed and apathetic. He pleads for human contact so that he can alleviate his loneliness. And at last they reach the stone table and Aslan bids the children leave, but instead they hide behind a bush. Lucy and Susan watch as hundreds of monstrous creatures surround Aslan and the stone table. These are horrible creatures from mythology, from the, the darkest realms of the human imagination. And at the center of these awful creatures is the witch. The witch expects Aslan's arrival. She tells her servants to tie him up. And at first they hesitate in fear. But when they see he doesn't resist, they are thrilled to oblige. They take those ferocious big paws, so massive and feline, the paws through which Narnia had been created, and they tie them up. The witch's servants humiliate Aslan by shaving off his mane. They muzzle him, they kick him, they jeer at him, and he does not raise a word in protest. 
The servants finish binding Aslan to the stone table, and the witch approaches him with her stone knife, and the witch tells Aslan that he is lost. The witch says she will kill Aslan instead of Edmund, and they, as they had agreed, but the sacrifice will appease the deep magic. The witch, however, explains that once Aslan is dead, there is nothing to stop her from then turning on the children of men, the daughters of Eve and the sons of Adam. Lucy and Susan cover their eyes, refusing to watch Aslan's execution. Immediately following his murder, the witch's forces leave to prepare for battle, and Aslan's dead body remains on the stone table, and Susan and Lucy come out from their hiding spot, and they cry over his body. Shamed and humiliated, the girls are unable to face Aslan. Susan and Lucy manage to remove the muzzle from Aslan, but they're unable to untie the cords that bind his body. Susan and Lucy spend the rest of the night in the miserable days, crying until they can cry no longer. And then we read, at that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and Aslan was no longer there. Eventually, Susan and Lucy return to Aslan's body. They see, they see mice scampering over him. Susan raises a hand to scare them away when Lucy notices that they're actually nibbling at the cords, the mice trying to untie him. They leave as dawn arrives, and Susan and Lucy walk around aimlessly as the sky brightens. The girls look at Caraparavel when the first ray of gold breaks over the horizon. At that moment, Susan and Lucy hear this deafening crack. They whirl around, and there they see it, the stone table broken in half. Aslan had disappeared, but Lucy asks if this is more magic, and a voice behind her answers that it is indeed more magic. Susan and Lucy swirl around again to see Aslan alive. Susan and Lucy rush to Aslan, and Susan asks him if he's a ghost. Aslan alleviates their fears with warm breath, and to answer their question, Aslan explains that the witch was right, that the deep magic had decreed that all traitors' lives are forfeit to the witch. If the witch had looked back before the dawn of time, however, she would have learned that when a willing, innocent victim is killed by a traitor, the stone table will crack, and death itself will be. Reversed. Friends, this is what Jesus did for you. The lion of the tribe of Judah roars and yet has also become a lamb, flesh for us, so that we might become a people who live out his calling of righteousness and justice for his sake and for his glory. Let's pray.